0: As we continue on the study of 2 Thessalonians, once again I'm going to read from chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord, and from the glory of his power. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. We spent the last two Sundays looking at verse five and the purpose was to gain an understanding of what it means, that what Paul is talking about there in verse five and how we ought to apply it to our lives Today we're going to focus on mostly verse 6, but just a bit of verse 7, and look at what God is doing and how we ought to respond to that. And with that, let's pray. Father, once again, this is your word, you've preserved it, you have spoken it to us. Speak through it to us, I pray in Christ's name, amen. Amen. I want to start with something that isn't so spiritual, but it does explain things. As I said two Sundays ago, the Greek wording in verse 5 is not as clear as we might like it to be, which makes it difficult for translating it into English. And that means it's a little bit more difficult for us to try to figure out exactly what it says. Well, the same is true for verse 6 here in 2 Thessalonians 1. And though the New American Standard is indeed my Bible of choice, as you've figured out by now, there are a few places where I don't agree with its translation from the Greek into English, and verse 6 is one of them. In my opinion, the English Standard Version provides a better translation of verse 6 than the New American Standard, and so I'm going to read verses 5 through 7 from the English Standard Version. It's a good version. I have nothing against it. I just don't use it because I've spent so much time with the New American Standard. All right, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 7 from the English Standard Version. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed... God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Now there is just a replacement of three words by one word that makes the difference, in my opinion, for understanding this. The word sense, S-I-N-C-E, at the beginning of the English Standard Versions verse 6, it makes it clear, I do believe, in the way the New American Standard has it. And that word can also be translated as in as much as or because. When we understand this verse this way, it shows us that God, in His righteous judgment and fairness, judges His own people first so that when he judges those that persecute and afflict his people, they will have no basis for complaining that he is not a just judge, but rather has a double standard. So, if by the time God gets to the place of judging those who have persecuted and afflicted believers, and this has gone on for centuries, he doesn't want to give them any room to imply or say or claim in any legitimate way, that he is an unjust judge, that he's partial to his own people. Peter affirms this view of God's righteous judgment in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. It's time for it to start with us. And Peter's talking about the uh, end times. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first... What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? To further clarify this truth that I'm wishing to get across to you today, I'm going to give you an amplified paraphrase of 1 Thessalonians 1, 5-6. So here's the amplified paraphrase. The persecution and afflictions forced upon believers by unbelievers or unconverted Jews, or those who call themselves Christians but aren't, the persecution and afflictions forced upon believers by these kinds of people are a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, a judgment used by God to purify His children and separate the insincere from the sincere, so that those who remain will be reckoned worthy of the kingdom of God. Are they worthy? No, but they're reckoned worthy. There's a difference between being worthy and being reckoned worthy. And God begins his judgment with his own people so that there will be no legitimate reason to say his justice is partial and therefore unfair when he repays with affliction those who have persecuted and afflicted his children. Every time I think through or talk to you right now about these verses I have this picture in my mind I believe it's from Nigeria an old gentleman two older women being persecuted to death, put to death by a group of Muslim uh, people in that area there's a ditch and they are forcing these three older people into that ditch and they are gathering brush and branches and starting it on fire, and they are putting them to death. This is just recent, by the way. This is not... This is not the last year that these kinds of things have happened. So there is a reality to this, and, and we should be aware of it and sensitive to what other believers are going through, and we should at least have some reasonable sense... That it could happen to us one day. And what I hope that we can see is that because God's righteous judgment is completely impartial and perfectly fair, He starts with us. He starts by judging us, by purifying us, by bringing justice. To us, not justice against those who have treated us unjustly, but justice into our own lives for our own unfairness, our own injustices, our own selfishness, our own waywardness. He starts with us first. Why? Well, we know better, don't we? I know better. I have no excuse. Now, you may find it challenging to believe God is a righteous judge when you're the one being persecuted or cruelly afflicted for being a Christian. And added to that, you're not just being persecuted or afflicted, but it appears, at least from what all you can see at the moment, that God's doing nothing to stop it. It's happening to you. However, I want to remind us not in some kind of uh, pretend way or let's build each other up by saying positive things to each other, but I want to remind us that the reality is God's ways are not the world's ways. Nor are they your ways when your ways are self-centered or relief from your suffering is your highest priority. One of our problems in valuing God for who he is and his justice for what it is, is our propensity to like God's justice when it serves our purposes and protects our interests. But we dislike God's justice when it makes our lives more difficult or painful or lonely, such as when God uses persecution and affliction to purify his people. Though Job wasn't being persecuted, he faced a similar challenge, in my opinion, a challenge in relation to trusting in God's goodness. And as if Job's suffering wasn't enough, in the midst of his trial, his own wife expressed both a mindset and an attitude that we are prone to have when life seems unfair or when difficult and painful things keep happening to us. Job's wife told him, curse God and die. In today's language, she might have said it this way, and I don't mean to be inappropriate, but just listen. In essence, she said to Job, why don't you just tell God to go to hell because he's letting horrible, awful, and terrible things happen to you. Just be done with them. Job's response to his wife's suggestion displays the kind of mindset and attitude we ought to have when facing hard times and especially when facing persecution and affliction for being a christian job said shall we indeed accept good from god and not accept adversity job 10 job 2 verse 10 in other words is god only good when good things are happening to us Is He not just as good? Is He not equally good when bad things are happening to us? If God causes all things to work together for good for those who love Him and are living according to His will, if that is really true, and I believe it is, will He not also work everything out for good when you are the one being persecuted? and afflicted for being a Christian? Of course, the answer to that question is yes. And no, we aren't being persecuted and afflicted in in any way equal to what other people have experienced, if we are at all. But I hope that we can see we need to be prepared. A second problem we face in valuing God for who he is and his justice for what it is is our propensity to be like Esau who sold what was highly valuable in the long run, that is his birthright, for a bowl of soup because he was in a hurry to gain relief from his more immediate need of hunger. It's way too common to be like Esau in valuing immediate relief from pain and suffering more then we value the benefits that come from enduring suffering with godly patience, a good attitude, and trust in God's goodness. By the way, the testimony of believers from Nigeria is that they are willing and even happy, is their words, I don't know exactly what that means, to suffer for, for God. They are willing to pay this price for the sake of the gospel and for the good of the church. It's an amazing attitude. A classic example of being like Esau among believers is how many either don't understand, and I do meet those who don't understand. And there are those who ignore, and there are those who dislike James 1, 2-4. And they're unwilling to take it to heart. They are unwilling to live out its truth. They would rather have immediate relief than a stronger faith or greater perseverance and the spiritual perfections that come from facing trials and tribulation with a grateful attitude. Godly patience, godly behavior, and confident trust that God will bring great good even from the bad. And the point is, if you want to have a sane... If you want to have... You have to think about this. I had to think about it. If you want to have a sane and sensible mindset for seeing persecution and affliction for what they are... And if you want to see God's righteous judgment as impartial and fair to all, to all, that includes us, and if you want what is best for all, not just for yourself, then what we are seeing here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 is that we ought to believe that God is using the persecution and affliction of believers to do what is good and right and just for the whole community, for everyone involved. And that includes those being persecuted and afflicted. And so I want to remind you once again that how you trust God today, and this is the important point in, in this, how you trust God today, how safe you feel in God's hands today regardless of the circumstances. And how you handle adversity today will either help you prepare or leave you less prepared for being persecuted and afflicted by unbelievers if and when the time comes. The truth that how you live now will powerfully influence how you live later is a truth that comes out of God's word. Jesus said in Luke chapter sixteen, ten. He who is faithful in a very little thing, that's being faithful today, will be faithful also in much. That's being faithful when persecution comes. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing, that's in the daily affairs of life today, if you're easily upset by troubles and hassles and frustrations and difficulties, you will not be happy, you will not be faithful You will not be patient when persecution comes. See, now is the time to build your faith, to strengthen your resolve to remain faithful in any and every situation. Now is the time to nurture the conviction that you are always safe in God's hands. Now is the time to learn what is truly valuable so that when life gets exceedingly hard, you value what truly matters. Let's go back to uh, James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. What is truly valuable there is the end result. Being perfected, having your perseverance strengthened, having greater faith. That's the outcome of passing through trials and tribulations with the right mindset, with the right attitudes. And that's what's truly valuable, the outcome. The process is painful. You know, we've all been to school. We've made our kids go to school. School is hard work. Now, I've never had to work as hard at school as some people. We have a good friend who uh, was in a doctor's program. She had to read four books a week. I mean, I just can't imagine consuming four books a week and even remembering what I read. And she had to write papers on all of them. She had to be prepared for discussions. And this was not just one week. You know, this isn't this week we have four books. This is week after week after week in this doctoral program. She suffered. She was up late at night, up early in the morning, no naps. Would we suffer for Christ's sake? Would we suffer for the outcome? She suffered for the outcome. Do we value what's really valuable? You see, now is the time to learn to walk and talk with God in a way that convinces you He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do you feel abandoned by God today? Now is the time to work on that. Because if you're suffering the pain of persecution and affliction, which is totally unjust, just plain wrong, you're likely going to feel abandoned by God if you feel abandoned now. Now is the time to learn how to pray wisely, to live sensibly, And rely on God's wisdom, his love, his goodness, his empowerment, and his protection, his provision to see you through the toughest and worst of times. right. the point is, if you want to remain faithful to God when being persecuted and afflicted, you have to prepare now. That's it. That's the reality of this. You have to prepare now. Verse 6, for after all, it is only just, right, or fair for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So if he's going to repay them, he's going to start with us first. He's going to bring justice into our lives first, and then he's going to bring justice into their lives. Why? Because that's impartiality. That's true justice. When we are mistreated, unloved, disrespected, emotionally hurt, or treated unjustly. We're prone to respond with what is called in today's jargon, fight or flight. I'm sure we've all heard that phrase. And in either case, whether it's fight or flight, we justify ungodly anger and raise self protection above trusting God to take care of us, and above godly humility, and above loving our neighbor as ourselves, and above seeking peace when possible. Mark just uh, reminded us of one of the stories in Isaiah. Here are the Israelites. They're, they're, they're in a bind. I mean, they're in trouble. And they want help from Egypt. Rather than turning to God, they turn to Egypt. So they load up these animals with money, send it down to Egypt in an effort to buy insurance, protection, Safety. Fight or flight, huh? Either one of those, regardless of which one you take, it ends up making you worse and the situation worse. Because such responses result in the kind of behavior that further damages or ends relationships. It feeds resentments or bitterness in us, and it makes true reconciliation nearly impossible. Obviously, flight brings relief by putting distance between us and the one mistreating us. And, you know, that it's nice to have that relief. I agree. It's hard to stay in a difficult relationship. It's hard to stay in a difficult situation. So flight does have some positive results. And fighting back makes us feel less vulnerable. And sometimes... As we've discovered, power forces the one mistreating us to stop their hurtful ways. So sometimes it works. However, when we make self-protection more important than faith in God's protection, and that's what we're doing, we're choosing one over the other. When we make self-protection more important than faith in God's protection, and Uh, God's honor and our own godliness. We end up weakening our faith. We end up damaging God's reputation and the reputation of Christianity. We end up damaging our own character. God says that we are to leave it up to him to repay those who harm and unjustly afflict us. Not just when we're persecuted. Not just when people are unjustly treating us because we're believers, but in all situations. And this is an important truth because it affects the way you think. It affects your mindset. And that affects your attitudes, your choices, and your behavior. So I'm going to give you three scriptures that deal with this. And you know one would be enough, I'm sure, but let's just look at all three starting with Deuteronomy chapter 32 verses 35 and the first half of 36 God tells Israel vengeance is mine and retribution or repayment now we can all say "Well, that's wonderful you know God covers the vengeance issue but when you're really upset when you're really ticked off when you're really hurt when you're really angry are you ready to wait for God? your right things? Are you? Or do you want things handled right now? Notice the next words. In due time their foot will slip. Now, it's not immediate. But in due time their foot will slip. For the day of their calamity is near and the impending things are hastening upon them. For the Lord will vindicate his people. That is, he will avenge and restore their rightful position and their possessions. And he will have compassion on his servants. I have said this before, let me just say it again quickly, one of the most profound statements is, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek would be those who let God seek vengeance, who allow God to take care of repayment rather than taking it themselves. But what, is, what, what, what does it say? It says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So the powerful, the strong, they come and take things away from you. They hurt you. They mistreat you. And you want to fight back. You want to get it back. And I'm not saying you shouldn't do anything. There is an appropriate time for everything. But what God is saying... What Jesus said in the Beatitudes is that all the strong people that took advantage of you, that hurt you, they're going to be dead. And everything that they took from you and everybody else is going to be left. And you're going to be alive. And it'll be yours. you understand that? It'll be yours. You will inherit it. You have to be alive to inherit And the people that have things have to be dead to leave it. In due time, their foot will slip. The day is coming. It's just not coming fast enough. Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. That is just a short statement that puts it all together in one spot and says it really well. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. Here's how Jesus dealt with this. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, it's nice that that's in the Bible, isn't it? Well, it is in the Bible, but Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray what? God, get them. You understand that God wants no one to perish. You have received grace. We sing uh, uh, about God's compassion and mercy to us, right? We talk about it. Do you want that for even those who persecute you? Do you want God's grace? Do you want them to be saved? Do you want them to come to faith in Jesus Christ? But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Now, verse 46. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? I mean, that's just simple. That's easy. It's easy to love somebody who loves you. There's nothing great about that. Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And the tax collectors were the dregs of society. I mean, these were Jews who took advantage of their fellow Jews, and not just the rich ones, but the poor ones. They were rip-off artists. They were told how much to collect, and they always collected more because that was their income. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles. He's speaking to Jews. That to be like even the unbelievers, or you know, the, the non-Christians. They do that. Therefore, you are to be perfect in showing love and mercy. You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It may seem that dealing God's way with those who mistreat, persecute, and afflict you, leaves you vulnerable. And from a worldly perspective, it does. But from the perspective of God, from the vantage point of faith in God, from the perspective of Christ's life, from a view of the world in light of eternity, the vulnerable ones are those who are self-centered, and trusting in themselves for their provision and protection. Let me just remind you once again of what Mark shared with us. The Israelites thought they were buying protection, and yet they were making themselves more vulnerable. Just the opposite of what they thought they were doing. The word of God says, Those who dwell in the shelter of the Most High are the ones who live in the shadow of the Almighty. It is those who dwell there who confidently trust God to be their refuge and fortress. These are the ones who are truly safe. For it is God who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. What's the snare of the trapper? It's what you don't see coming That trips you up, that captures you that grabs you but God sees it, he delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence he will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you may seek refuge, his faithfulness will be a shield and a bulwark when you have made the Lord even the most high your secure dwelling place, that's true safety that's The solution to vulnerability. The truth is, based on what really matters and what is eternally valuable, you are never vulnerable any more than Jesus was vulnerable when taken by the Jews, beaten by the soldiers, condemned to death by Pilate, and nailed to a cross. Was he vulnerable in any of those moments? Absolutely not. God was with him and in control all the way. Did he still experience them? Yes. Were they painful? Yes. Let us never diminish the reality of the pain. But let us not believe falsely that because we have pain, we are vulnerable or we are abandoned or God is not at work on our behalf. True safety True security comes from God. It's probable that the Christian and Christians in Peter's day wondered why they had to patiently wait until God's return to see justice in regard to those who were unjustly mistreating them. And I'm saying it's probable because we aren't certain that's why Peter wrote these words, but these words certainly fit in today's teaching and they present at least that perspective second Peter chapter 3 verses seven to 9 by God's word the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men but do not let this one fact he says just this one fact just keep this one fact in mind, Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. To you, one day of persecution or suffering is like a thousand years. It's it's like unending pain. When will this ever end? But Peter is saying, you know, don't let this one fact escape your notice. A day is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day Here's the truth. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. And the next words are vital. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. We shared in communion today because we are grateful for what Christ did for us. And what he did, he did because he doesn't want any to perish. Will we join in the sufferings of Christ in order to promote the gospel in the hopes that others will not perish? Let me finish with just reading verse 7, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. God's justice will also give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when, when, not right now, but when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire.